we haven't taught them that those are the reasons. We've taught people you should exercise for weight and health, but we haven't taught them. Guess what though? It's the now, it's the now feel good reasons. It's the fact that it's, it's who you feel you are at your core. That's what's gonna actually lead to sustainable change. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. If you're one of our millions of listeners, you're likely a seeker of perfection and self-improvement, and there is nothing wrong with that. But how can you create bulletproof behaviors that get you through some of life's complexities? Find out how to make your, quote, joy choice and continue to make progress in an all-or-nothing world. Here it is, episode 618. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. Summer is weeks away, and you got to get that body right. Now, whether it's to pack on a little bit of muscle to fill out those pants and fill out that T-shirt, or to lean out and show off those abs by popping off that shirt, we got you covered. Now, the reason we like to start busting our ass now is so that we have a little bit of margin of error so that you can cut loose and not feel guilty. So what I want you to do is go check out one of Power Athlete's nutrition protocols. We got a leaning, we got a bulking, we got a keto, and we also have a performance protocol for those of you that need a little bit of extra attention or really trying to dial it in so that you look like a million bucks come summer. To learn more, head to powerathletehq.com forward slash nutrition to find out which protocol is right for you. And we're going to give you an extra 20% off at checkout with the code EATTHEWEEK. 20%? Yeah, that's all caps. E-A-T-T-H-E-W-E-A-K at checkout. Dude, sounds good to me. Now you got your mission. You know what we're expecting. Go get it. See ya. Hey, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. I'm John Walborn, CEO of Power Athlete, and joined by Mr. McQuilkin, a.k.a. Tex, Director Hello. of Training. How you doing, man? Good. It's nice to see you again. I am very excited about this. So we're welcoming Dr. Michelle Seeger, and I had the opportunity to uh, dive into a lot of research within the world of behavior change when I was in grad school. And we're going to get into your latest book, The Joy Choice. Uh, you're also, also the author of a book called No Sweat. And everything that I learned in the book, you basically ripped apart all the experience I had in grad school. And now here we are with more of a sustainable behavior change approach rather than just old school behavior change. So, uh, Michelle, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself. So University of Michigan lifestyle coach. There's a lot in your experience and we want to hit the ground running. So welcome sure. to Power Athlete Radio. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here um, and talking about the, you know, this very important thing, which is how do we help people create changes that last? My background is um, I have a PhD in psychology focused on motivation, the self and sustainable change. I have a master's in public health focused on health behavior, health education, and a master's in kinesiology. Um, and that, you know, academic training, you know, might look good on paper, but as you know, from the work that you probably do day in and day out, it's the real work we do with people that really teaches us what works and what doesn't. So um, my background integrates research, but I view the work that I do with humans as important as any academic study I've done or that anyone else has done that I think is important for that matter. Because 
people's lives is where the rubber hits the road. And so any science that, you know, is going to be worth its weight has to truly work in the lives of most people. And a lot of the research is based around habits and you kick off the book, basically going to town, understanding habits and why they shouldn't just be assumed that, hey, we're going to practice this. It's going to work in 21 days. So take us through some bold assumptions that we all have about habits that your research and experience may say otherwise. Sure. So one thing that I want to clarify is when we're talking about let's talk about habit formation because habits is a term that is used in our culture to mean regular behavior. When I'm, when what my concern is really about is habit formation creating automatic habits that we don't have to think about. And I want to kick off the conversation by saying, you know, habit formation is great. It's a way that our brain can make things efficient for us. Um, and for very simple behaviors where there's not a lot of um, things that can get in the way, like flossing, you know, that's great. I have a flossing habit at night that serves me well. What I'm concerned about is overgeneralizing the value of habit formation for complex behaviors that have multiple steps, that have multiple opportunities during the day to derail them. Um, Oftentimes habit formation is discussed as being due to something that's called the habit loop, which has three parts, a cue um, that might be for me, the toothbrush that's connected to the behavior, picking up the flossing role, and then the rewards, some feeling of satisfaction or positive experience. And that Um, creates a habit loop that gets our brains engaged unconsciously or with automatically in doing this behavior. Um, And for things like flossing, it works well. But once we step outside of the bathroom and we're confronted with so many things in our lives, things that uh, often are unexpected, like a sick kid or a project at work being moved up or the dog pukes on the floor, whatever it is, Things that we have to deal with, they knock us off our schedule and what we hope to accomplish. And so that's kind of the big picture of why habit formation for a complex behavior for like exercise, for example, is concerning. So I'll stop there to see if you have any reactions. No, I'm, I'm in agreement. I mean, uh, I've lost my teeth, too. Um, I mean, I brush <laughs> twice a day. And uh, I can't go to sleep unless I brush my teeth. That's another weird one. I'll lay there in bed staring at it. But if I go brush my teeth, I fall asleep immediately. But you have that moment alone. And then you have, you got three kids, Uh, two dogs. The the only thing. Business to run, a charity to run. The only thing that stresses me out uh, (laughs) is so I'm habitually a right-handed brusher. (laughs) <laughs> and and then I get mad at myself that I don't brush left-handed because I'm not trying to improve upon neuroplasticity and improve like motor neurofunction by doing it in my opposite hand. So that's another one that kind of stresses Skill me acquisition. Out. Well, I, I read that there are certain things that you can do to increase neuroplasticity, like uh, juggle crosswood puzzles, brush your teeth in your other hand. So, I mean, that, that but that throws me out of my loop too. But, uh, you know, like I never viewed habits as, well, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting connotation. When I think of habit, I usually think of something negative. Like I think of more associated with bad habits. Sure. Um, I just figured uh, as a, a, you know, adult human being on this planet who's living in this day and age, you should at least brush your teeth twice a day. And if you don't, 
then obviously, you, you know, your parents didn't do a good job raising you. Well, as, fit, uh, like, fit, I mean, as fitness professionals, we can assume, hey, why doesn't everyone get 60 minutes of fitness a day? Uh, yes. well, yeah, I mean, that's a big one. The, the other one, too, is uh, I, um, I'm assuming you have kids cause, and dogs because you mentioned dogs throwing up, which my dog yeah. threw up the other day, too. So I, that one resonated with me. Um, <laughs> but uh, I have three kids and there's this constant fight for trying to, like, program them with, with, with you know, sustainable good habits. And then looking at them and being like, I can't believe you guys haven't showered in three days. Yeah. Like, like that one, like, I mean, uh, like, like the, the habit of showering at least once or twice a day seems very normal. And my kids will be like, when was the last time you guys showered? And they're like, we don't know. We've, we've been in the pool. But, and you, but you know, getting back to, to like fitness, the thing to keep in mind, and I find this with fitness professionals, especially like my hubby who's a habiter, who's someone who makes sure to get up every day at 530 in the morning to exercise. And, you know, when I talk to him about this, that's getting back to one of your earlier questions is there are some people who have will have no trouble sticking, you know, having habit formation work for them for complex behaviors. And my husband is one of them. It There are personality differences. And, the, you know, when you said earlier, like, why don't Every, why doesn't everyone do 60 minutes of exercise a day? Like, you know, you know, like people have been taught they should and, you know, recommendations change and, you know, we don't have to go into the nitty gritty of what different recommendations are. But the idea is that um, when people, especially people in the fitness industry, um, we tend to go into a field because we love it, right? We love to exercise. It's something that fuels us and helps us feel our best and strong and empowered. And um, so I find that people in the fitness industry, not everyone, of course, but people tend to be habiters or tend to work really well with habits for regular exercise. And they value them so much that they make sure that things don't get in the way, right? Like Jeff, who gets up at 5.30 a.m., regardless of what time he goes to sleep, to exercise because he needs his exercise more than anything. And so that's one of the things I talk about in the chapter on habits is that there are personalities that are going to succeed with habit formation, right? Um, and so I think that's important to point out. Um, is, um, and that I've... Are are habits associated with patterns? I mean, are, are the people that tend to like stick to those are the same people that, uh, you know, like once they lay out a pattern, they just get stuck. Like my wife, for example, lives her life by a spreadsheet. I mean, it's unbelievable yes. how detail oriented she is on everything. Like everything, like the night before is like clocked out. She knows exactly what the schedule is to the point where, uh, you know, she knows like, Hey, I got to do X, Y, and Z. And this is, this is where my workout fits. This is where I do this. And yes. while she doesn't train at the exact same time every day, she never misses. And her schedule is like plus or minus like one minute. It's unbelievable. People who tend to be really disciplined and have a lot of self-control are more successful forming automatic habits for things. So yeah, I mean, there is, there is this personality element, but you know, there's also the element of, do people have some type of a conflict, inner conflict related to healthy eating and exercise? And because those two behaviors have been inextricably connected to the pressure to look a certain way and to lose weight, that pressure tends to contaminate people's relationships with trying to change their eating patterns and trying to exercise more. So it's, it's not just 
I want to exercise more or I want to eat in a better way in a vacuum. It's, ah, there's something wrong with me. I have shame about my body. You know, when I move, it makes me feel uncomfortable and sweating makes me feel uncomfortable or eating. This is bad food. I can't have it. And so those tensions infiltrate these behaviors, behaviors that should just be great self-care decisions are all about, you know, temptation. And I want to rebel against this because it inherently means something's wrong with me right now. So it's very complicated. And think about the habit. If we go back to the habit loop and we think about the reward part of that, right? The feel good part of it. If people have these innate um, negative associations, which by the way, there's new theories that are all about these associations and how they can thwart a, a desire to, to actually follow through with our intentions and our plans, then it's not just, you know, it's not very rewarding, right? So the habit loop is going to get disrupted from these internal and often unconscious feelings that people have about exercising. I mean, this is self-sabotage. I mean, this is why. Yeah, um, but it's but it know. shouldn't be called self sabotage. It should be called societal sabotage because. Why do you say that? <laughs> because these the sabotage isn't really coming from the self. It's coming from what the self has learned, has been has internalized from the messages and pressures that society has given us. People don't inherently believe that they don't there there's something wrong with themselves or they're unattractive or they feel shame i mean that is all coming from what um we've been indoctrinated by through society well there's some disruptions that you speak on in the book that that i think we're getting into can you explore those four disruptions that you speak of the book that distract us from making decision like we know we should eat this way we know we should aim to get up early and get our fitness in before the distractions come in like 6 a.m. calls from our pals in the UK. Yeah. So can you just, uh, Michelle, can you get into the disruptions that we can uh, prepare for to really align our days and hit our fitness and nutrition goals? Sure. So I, I think it's also important to understand when we talk, when we think about sustainable change, you know, that's the goal. That's what people want. People don't want to just start a new eating plan and quit or have it last for months or start a fitness routine and have and quit. Right. So sustainability is this, you know, outcome that we all care about, but the way to achieve that outcome is making decisions that are consistent with our greater goals. Right. So that's why we have to care so much about our daily decisions around healthy eating and exercises, because that's what's ultimately determines whether we sustain the changes we care about. And if we care about these decisions in the moment, we have to care about what has the potential to disrupt them. So let's mm -hmm. jump into that. Um, in my coaching work with people, I found that there are four core disruptions, um, what I call our decision traps, temptation, rebellion, accommodation, and perfection. And temptation is the first one. And this is the one where we feel seduced by Netflix on the comfy couch instead of going out for the run or that chocolate piece of cake glistening across the room at a party we're at that's not on our eating plan. And these are very visceral 
um, seducing experiences. Now, I do want to say temptation, I am not addressing addiction because addiction is in a whole different category. So let's be clear that, you know, that needs its own um, strategy because addiction is a, you know, this physiological, neurological um, issue that I just want to say that. Um, but we're used to thinking about temptation. When we feel tempted, we're used to thinking that what is tempting us is this external factor, the couch, Netflix, the beer, you know, um, Tortilla and our friend, chips at the Mexican restaurant. Yes, the chips at the Mexican restaurant. But the new thinking about, um, you know, what is tempting us has to do with our brains. It, I mean, it, there are new theories that are about the fact that these experiences that we feel pulling at us is not coming from the cake or the couch. It's coming from our past history with these things. And I think that is a very empowering realization. So when we're at a decision point and we feel all this temptation, it can be very helpful to say, wait a sec. It's not that cake that's actually tempting us. It's our past experiences with it and who we were with when we had it the last time and the texture and the sensations of it in our mouths and how our brain categorizes those things. So that's the temptation disruptor. And people are very, are very aware um, about what this feels like. But I think once we understand that it's our past history that's really driving the temptation, not what's actually in front of us, I think that can empower us. That's number one. The second one is rebellion. And I bet that you've experienced this um, in the work that you do. People may make plans and they may have intentions, at, but all of a sudden they're like, screw this eating plan. You know, I'm going to eat the pizza because, damn it, I've had a hard day at work and that's what I want. Rebellion um, is an absolute a you know, normal human response to feeling controlled. There's a theory called reactance theory. And when people feel that their freedoms have been taken away, I have to exercise instead of do that, or I can't eat that. We are naturally inclined to rebel against those things. And so that's the second disruptor. And, you know, you could say it's self-sabotage, but again, people are rebelling against these shoulds in society that they've internalized. So what we need to do is understand what we've learned about these behaviors that is getting us to rebel against the choices that we decided that we wanted to make. The third one is in a different category and that's accommodation. And that is when we always, not sometimes, when we always subsume our own um, eating and exercise needs and decisions um, below the needs of others. Um, and I tell a story in the book uh, about a client who had this, who was following this wonderful new eating plan. She felt great. She owned it. But then she went on this um, vacation, three family vacation, annual thing that they do. And her friend was offering her some wonderful special dessert that she had made. And my client felt like she didn't want it. She wasn't tempted. She wasn't rebelling against this, but she felt like she needed to accommodate the needs of her friend 
um, who had offered it to her as a gift. And so that's when we do things to accommodate the needs of others or from a work perspective, when we just never, when we get to that point in the day when it was time to take our walk and we're like, oh, my inbox is still up at hundred. I just can't, I've got to get down to 25 before I shut down. And when it's not when we do that sometimes, it's when we do it every time or most of the time, when we accommodate the needs of work and people, you know, then we don't have time for our own self-care. And the fourth one really is maybe the biggest one. It's perfection. It's all or nothing thinking. And when we think we have to do it right, you know, it's when, it, when it's the full box of cookies or nothing at all, you know, perfection goes for the box and leaves the rest of the three to fight over the spoils. Perfection sets the stage for everything else, because if it has to be a certain way, then of course we're going to rebel against it. So those are the four disruptors that I've seen in my work. You know, I'm curious if you've seen others, you know, that I, that I haven't experienced. We just finished up a 90 day challenge and like our objective with 90 days is it almost puts you in a position that allows you as you cover in the book, to fail, acknowledge you're failing, and then get back on track. Because 90 days is a long time. It is a long time. So as working through the book, I was feeling the experiences of me doing this, right? The temptation of chips. I had to give up tortilla chips. Yeah, just don't buy them. Uh, rebelling against my... Uh, <laughs> A few things. Well, it's, it's, uh, I mean, and this is, I'm, I'm but, sure you've seen, it's like the loss of inhibition. Uh, would like, not even, but the biggest thing that I suffer from was the accommodation. As for example, if we have a 7 a.m. training session and then our other partner over here in the UK, six hours ahead of us, calls or I need this and that, well, okay, I know his day is ending and that, that is priority. So then that pushes training back and then our emails start coming in. Yep. And so by the end of it, then I guess it's the perfection. Okay. Well, I'll I just, missed today. I missed today. Yeah. Right. Right. But what else could you do? So, you know, when we, when ignore our, the, <laughs> ignore no, <him. laughs> no, no, just have like a save. So like for me, um, like if, uh, I were to miss our training for the day, uh, I have a, a salt bike at our house and I'll just go ride it for 30 minutes. And I'm like, well, at least I got my assault bike in for 30 minutes. So yes. like, I, I think you got to have a save. Like there's a, you know, uh, you know, like, what is it like the failure of every perfect plan is a distraction. I mean, you know, like you get distracted on something, you got to have a save, you got to have a plan B. Um, so that's always been my deal. And I call that save the joy choice. Mm -hmm. That's what the joy choice is. It's the perfect and perfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing. That's, and by the way, you know, for, and again, this wouldn't work for my husband because he's got to do it right every time. That's what he wants, you know, he, and he's able, he's able to be successful, but the research shows that the, the perfect and perfect are doing something instead of nothing coming to your, the weekend with flexible restraints. So yes, you're going to train yourself, but in flexible ways. So you don't feel, um, um, what's the word when you, when you feel, uh, I can't have something. What is that word? Just it starts with a D. Anyway, temper tantrum. I, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> when you do things with flexible restraint, when you have a save, research suggests that is what more people need to stay the path. So it's very counterintuitive, but it combats the all or nothing thinking. So, you know, whether you only have one save 
Like you you know, if you can't do A, you do B. Um, but sometimes even B can't be done. So what we want to do is teach people to think in more flexible ways more generally, because that's what research suggests is, is going to help more people stick with it over time. So well, I'm curious I, what you guys think about that. Uh, a few things. Two, one, uh, I've found that uh, a loss of inhibition is probably the worst thing you can do. Uh, like, I'm going to have a drink. Like, hey, I'm going to drink a beer or have a drink. And then next thing you know, you're like, I'm just going to eat that whole bowl of chips. And I, I found that as long as, I mean, I've, I've been stuck in this and I know you do because I can see you smiling over here. Like, you make pretty good decisions until you have like a few drinks. So I know we recommend for a lot of our clients like, hey, um, like limit the alcohol. We tend to make bad decisions when we start drinking. So if you want to stick on, uh, just limit the alcohol. Um, the other and big research one, actually supports that. Yeah. Well, so. the, and, then, and then the other big one, yeah, I mean, uh, you, you can have all the research in the world and you can talk to anybody. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, as long as I'm not drinking, I'm fine. I had a drink and next thing you know, I magically showed up with this whole pizza. Uh, the other one is actually teaching people that really there are no bad foods. You know, whenever people yes. are like, well, that's a bad food. Yes. I'm like, what do they break into your house? Do they steal your wallet? I mean, like they <laughs> flash your tires. Like, what do you mean bad foods, good foods? Like anything consumed in excess is going to be considered bad for you. Like you can take the best foods in the world. And if you eat them like a glutton, that's right. it's going to be fine. So I think just teaching people that uh, moderation is the trick. Like when we, man, I mean, the research on this is, is pretty uh, interesting in that if you look at all diets equated for calories, the one that allows you to eat in caloric restriction is by far the most sustainable diet. That, right? And, and so oh, that's right. when we talk about sustainability, I'm like, uh, and you know, that's the whole, if it fits your macros where people talk about flexible dieting, where, you know, like, hey, here's the deal. I'm not going to be overly focused on the foods. I'm just going to be focused on the amounts. I mean, there was a study where a dude, I think ate like, it was either McDonald's or Twinkies or something in caloric restriction. And the guy ended up leaning, losing weight. So this idea of like, I have to eat the perfect foods. Well, even, it's, and, and, and I, I saw this when we were in the paleo deal. Um, I ran into some, some people that were considered primal paleo eaters that were extremely obese. And I remember asking Rob Wolf about it. I'm like, Rob, like, I mean, these foods are extremely satiating. Why are these people fat? And his comment was because they eat like starved hogs. And I don't care what food it is. If you consume like every calorie you can, regardless of, you know, if it comes from one ingredient and it's whole foods and this and this, if you overeat, you're going to be lunchy and fat. <laughs> so like it's kind of, you know, but the idea is that if you're consuming a high, uh, you know, high quality diet of like, you know, animal based proteins, which are extremely satiating, it becomes more difficult to overeat, but people still find a way to do it. Well, you know, the, there's a couple things. One is that a lot of times people overweight or eat overeat because they're in rebellion against, you know, this greater message that is infused into whatever eating project that they're currently doing. That's, you know, one thing, but you know, that you're right. I mean, my understanding of the science in this area is, is whatever diet, whatever eating plan you're going to succeed in sticking with is the best one. And this, but this gets back to fit, right? It, whether it's eating or exercise or something else, whether it's our marriage or our job, the fit that it ha that we have with it is crucial to whether it is fulfilling and and is something that we're going to stick with. So, I mean, this notion of fit is so important, and I think that is what has been missing from the greater um, story of behavior change that we've been told. So is it something where you believe if we can establish and explain this to people in a rational, intelligent manner, 
that they can begin to make a life change because they understand the magnitude of the problem? Yes. I think it's very important. You know, when I start working with a client, that's kind of where I start is with, first of all, asking people if they've been successful long-term and, you know, pretty much anyone who's working with me hasn't. And then you want to know, well, what have you done and why have you done it? And, and then you, you want them to bring their own history into it. But then, you know, I mean, the reason why I write these books is because I want to give um, people, but also the professionals that work with them, the tools and the science in consumer-friendly ways that you can use to explain to people, yes, people need to understand the science. I mean, if people come to the picture and say, you know, I just, I know there are all these great habit books out there and I'm supposed to be forming an automatic habit and then I'll just be successful. You know, that's a misunderstanding of of what they really need to be successful. So you want to help them understand about fit and about the science. I mean, the science of flexibility is where things are going and where things are at. But most people to this day are stuck in all or nothing thinking. And it's because of the way socialization works. So you can tell someone, you could tell one of your clients, you know, it's really important to have a save and to be flexible. And of course, if you're modeling that and you're, that will help too. But if you just tell people, you know, the science shows that being more flexible when you bump up against a challenge with your plan, or you're not as motivated to do it, instead of feeling like you have to do it right, do something instead of nothing. We have been brainwashed to have all or nothing thinking. It's not just a belief that we individually hold. It's what society has you know, hammered into our heads for many decades. And that's why it's so hard to change. So I think that's an important um, thing to share with people that we've actually been brainwashed to, and it's, as you know, with brainwashing or edu education, indoctrination, socialization, brainwashing, it's basically the same thing. And it makes it hard to change our beliefs. And that's why when people come to a point of choice, they usually go for the nothing when they can't do the all because mm. they literally their brains are set up to do that. So the more you start talking about it, the more people will start to change their belief systems. Where does this stem from? I mean, you, you know, you're saying we've been indoctrinated into it. Is it like within TV society? I mean, where does this kind of fit? Like, where does this mindset come from? It's inadvertent. It's an accidental thing. It comes out of the research on exercise has been based on a dose response um, model. You know, you do this much, and that's the nature of the research. So, you know, if, if the earlier research came out and said, we need to do 60 minutes to achieve this, this dose of exercise will give us this cardiovascular benefit, it's a prescription. And, you know, research on, on nutrition, you know, everything has to be measured. And, so it's a very, it's accidental that it's happened, but it's the normal evolution. So we do research and then the media picks it up and talks about it. And then people hear about it from their doctors and the magazines and we internalize, oh, we're supposed to be doing this. But that, that whole pathway of, to getting to the all or nothing thinking uh, has, been a natural evolution, I think, out of the research that we've done, 
But there's a difference between doing research in the lab and coming up with the benefits and what is actually going to motivate the consistent decision making and enable us to make the choices that let us stay consistent with our greater goals. They're, they're two completely different things, right? Two completely different things. Yet the convention of we should be exercising to lose weight. We should be exercising to benefit our health. Those are conventions and research suggests that those messages are not effective, effective long-term motivators. So there's this disconnect between the research that's been done in the lab about the benefits and why we, we should exercise and why we should eat fruits and vegetables, et cetera, et cetera, and what is actually going to motivate and help people stick with the decisions that keep them consistent with their goals. They're two different things. Well, I mean, uh, I see people smoking cigarettes. I mean, the, I mean, the research is super conclusive. I mean, well, the, you know, you're, you know, the mortality rate dramatically increases and your lifespan goes down for every cigarette well, smoke on the pack that it's, they purchase. Yeah. You will die. And, uh, and people still smoke cigarettes. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, like, well, I don't know how to like explain that to people. Addiction I mean, is part. I mean, cigarettes are an example where there is a physiological addiction, right? Sure. So, but you're right. It, there's addiction, but there's also people. There's so many reasons that people do things that are bad for them, right? A big part of the book, and you put why are we doing this behavior, and mentioned Daniel Kahneman's research. So, and you've mentioned goals and motivations thus far. So let's stick with that. How can we avoid these distractions by focusing on that? Why are we not doing the eating well or exercise? Right. And so, you know, Kahneman talks about this thing he learned and it's, you know, something that's been a, a driving strategy for me and my work is we need to identify what is getting in people's way. What, you know, why aren't people when they go to a party and they completely don't follow anything on their eating plan, right? Why are they doing that? Well, I, I think one of the reasons people are doing that is because they haven't been taught to, to eat more flexibly. And remember, it's not what people do at any one time, right? That's part of the all or nothing thinking is right now you know, this, this now has, is this, you know, all powerful moment. And if I screw it up right now, and again, it's all or nothing thinking, screw it up, not how can I navigate this? What could I do that would keep me, um, you know, uh, aligned with part of my plan, but I, but also lets me enjoy the moment. And because this is one decision out of 10, I'm going to make today and 200 I'm going to make in the next week. We, we don't teach people to think this way. So that is, for example, something that gets in the way. Um, we want to identify, and you know, um, my earlier work was really focused on having the wrong why. So I don't talk about this as much in the joy choice because the joy choice is really about how do we succeed when things go awry? Um, my first work was about how do we set people up success for success with the most potent whys or reasons for um, being physically active and taking care of ourselves, And that was what my earlier research was on. And what we found was that whys, the most common whys or reasons for change, weight loss and better health 
while logical and well-meaning, are motivation contaminators. You know, and I actually, when I started out on my research path, I thought that better health would be a wonderful, potent Mm -hmm. reason for exercising. I assumed that. But then my research suggested that it was this non-optimal why almost as non-optimal as weight loss. And I I wanted to like shriek when I got this finding. I was like, how could this be? How could health be a poor motivator? But it's a poor motivator because it's this future abstract goal. And we know that people are more more motivated by what they're going to experience right now. So the the motivators, the best motivators for physical activity, for example, that research shows is the momentary positive experiences people have while they're exercising, not afterwards. And I know some people will say, like my husband, but I don't really enjoy exercising. It's how I feel afterwards that do it. And again, if you talk to people in the fitness industry, you'll see that this is a very common thing to say, but it gets back to these personality differences. Research, it's almost, for, for the average person, research pretty unequivocally shows that how we feel while we're exercising, not afterwards, is what predicts whether we keep it up. Again, nothing is ever true for everyone. And a lot of fitness people, like my husband, who's an exercise physiologist, would say, it doesn't feel good, but I do it anyway. (laughs) Most of us don't have the wherewithal, the energy to push through, you know, uh, during our leisure time to something that doesn't feel, that feels punishing. Um. Well, that's uh, you're you've been a professional athlete. You uh, are not most people, John. Yeah, no, I, I uh, you know, uh, my history, I played in the NFL for a decade. And so uh, I always looked at training in terms of like the performance vehicle to allow yes. me to be successful in the field. Yes. Um, I, I actually explained this to my daughter last night, who's uh, she's a pretty good swimmer. And she's like, I don't really enjoy practice. And I was like, I never enjoyed a single practice I ever went to. I never enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, uh, like any of the training. But what it was, was it was an ability, um, it, well, it was the necessary task to sharpen the blade so I could be lethal on, a, on Sundays. Absolutely. But that, and that, that's why our why is so, what our goals are, your performance goals are a completely different conversation. I just got asked this question in a talk I gave in Texas. A student athlete said to me, you know, you know, I don't like train, I don't like the practice, you know, so based on what you're saying, I'm actually going to not do my practice. I'm going to develop a bad habit. I'm going to perform worse, you know, and maybe I'll lose my scholarship is what he said. And I'm like, please, if your goal is performance, that changes everything. That's why, why, that's why we have to be very, very precise and, and have real awareness about what our why is, but that doesn't negate the fact that if people truly want to lose weight and truly want, you know, their exercise to impact better health or to deliver better health, those whys are not potent motivationally long-term. They get people to start and stop and start and stop, but not sustain. Uh, I think the mindset's completely broken uh, on on what people focus on. Um, If you look at it, 
Um, you know, like, uh, you know, we've done a ton of talks. I did one for the NSCA on metabolic flexibility, the idea that, um, you know, your body is able to move between different fuel sources easily. The greatest determining factor was muscle mass. So the more muscle you carry in relation to body fat, the more metabolically flexible are, regardless of how you got there. We meet all these people. I'm sure you do. Oh, everybody's talking about, I need to lose fat. I need to lose fat. I need to lose fat. When I think we're actually in a situation where everybody's just under muscled. And if everybody could just put on muscle, I mean, we've deal, dealt with this over the years. Oh, I, I'd like to be 5% body fat. The easiest way for me to get you to be 5% body fat isn't necessarily to have you lose fat, is to have you put on muscle. And everybody looks dramatically better with more muscle. I'll just give you an example. My wife uh, gets stopped wherever we go. And women ask her constantly what she does for her training because she's in such good shape. And as soon as she tells them what she does, a single, every one of them goes, no, it's too hard. And it, it's, it, it's the weirdest thing in like this weird psychology. like. People only want it if it's easy and the idea that, you know, it's going to take some effort. It's going to take some attention to detail. You're actually going to have to lift heavy weights. When she tells them, she's like, I bang heavy weights and I try to put on muscle every single day. Every one of them. Um, the first thing is, oh, I put on muscle really easy, which I call bullshit on because mm -hmm. I've been spending the last 30 plus years of my life trying to put on muscle every single day and it's not easy to do. And yet uh, all these women who've never lifted weights magically can put on just pounds of muscle easily. Uh, it's just a really broken kind of concept where I think people... Uh, like they, man, like they're just the idea of like losing fat and I got to lean out and I got to be this and this, it's just really broken. And if they just looked into a more performance goal and that's where power athlete or company was a little bit different, where I realized that actually looking better was a byproduct of performance. That if you could focus on getting faster, getting stronger, moving better and reaching goals within the workouts, everybody just got jacked and in good shape as a byproduct of actually focusing on that. People focused on the aesthetics they tended to fail at like in masses. You know, I don't work in the performance realm. So, you know, I just want to say that I work with, you know, kind of your more average Joe and Jane. Um, and so it really depends who your audience is. I mean, I think your audience, my guess is your audience tends to be people who are, who care about performance and have the lifestyle and the daily context that permit them to focus on that because it's, you know, that's a pretty big goal, right? That's that you, you, in order to do what you need to do to improve your performance, I mean, that is a really, so a, a very focused um, goal. So, but that isn't the realm that I work in. So I want to make sure that I'm clear. I'm talking about people who are, you know, trying to stick with um, healthy lifestyles, but they're not necessarily focusing on performance, you know? Uh, Michelle, to help bridge the gap, one of our, yeah. our taglines is performance for the people. Okay. And we have a lot of folks that have built their own garage gym and then lean on us to provide training. So yes. they know trusted resources. And what we try to aim to get people to do is shift perspectives from outcome goals. Like we're talking about, I want to yes. lose 30 pounds yes. and bring it into more of a, a process to what Perfect. you're speaking of. To where, okay, well, I know after the end of six weeks, we're going to retest on performance-based goals like the bench press. And then eventually, as good as process goals are, from our perspective, our aim is to create this identity. I am a power athlete. Yes. So then it starts to drive their nutrition choices, their, their alcohol consumption, and these other things. And the beauty of creating this identity of a power athlete, even though they are a nine-to-fiver with a garage gym, their family starts to observe them train and then their kids, all they know is a giant kick-ass weight room is normal. 
Why doesn't That's, everyone have this in their garage? Well, the research, the I would say the most cut, the most exciting emerging research is about identity. So you are mm-hmm. right on target by getting people to want to identify with their choices because that is what research shows. I mean, think about it. If a behavior reflects who you are and what you care about, you are so much more invested in doing it. But the second part of that is the flexibility, mm-hmm. right? Because if a behavior reflects who you are at your core and who you value being and modeling, like you said to your kid, you know, having a weight room where, or if you can't, you know, what it, I, I wrote down the word you used, a save, you know, if you can't do what you were going to do in your weight room and you take your family on a walk after dinner, it's the save. And you talk about it. You say, oh my God, in front of your three kids, you talk about it as a save because it's so important. The save becomes the gold because you're actually modeling and helping internalize, brainwash your kids, if you will, that it's so important to fit it in that even if you can't do what you hope to do, let's do, let's, let's, Let's do something else. And again, you called the save. I called the joy choice, the perfect and perfect option that lets you do something instead of nothing. And bringing your family along in the conversation orally, like that's the way to go. Uh, To go back to something you said earlier, I think the reason that people fail is uh, health is really interesting in that you have to be pretty close to the end of your rope, like in death to actually feel terrible. Like, uh, like the human body will take a lot of shots and you'll run into a lot of things before you get up to the point and you think, holy shit, like I got to make a life change. That's why it's very difficult for most people to just organically make a life change. Some bad news or something bad has to happen. And for men, a lot of times it's like, you know, I'll, I'll see a guy, um, you know, and all of a sudden he loses 30 pounds and I know something bad happened. Either got a, he had a heart attack or he got some form of scare. Uh, you know, I've had numerous clients and done a ton of consults with guys who are going through something like. I got some terrible blood work. I had a, a heart bypass. I mean, some form of some, I mean, something gnarly where all of a sudden the mortality becomes yeah. very real. And now they need to, they need to realize that they need to make a life change and they usually stick with it. And what's amazing to me is they always say the same thing. If this hadn't happened, I don't know if I would have made a change. So you're seeing the positive examples of that because most people who go to the doctor and get bad news want to change and try to change. And this is where the health becomes problematic as a, as a motivator. Most people you'd think it would kickstart everyone on a successful journey, but it doesn't because it kickstarts some people, but most, most people get stuck in a motivation that's about the future and not right now and the craziness of life and not being taught how to make those saves so that they learn to be flexible and work with life. Because if if your success is defined by this and you can't do this most of the time, then you can't be successful. So it's really, so, you know, it, oftentimes we see the, the outliers where something does work and we assume that it works for most people. And, and I, I would propose to you that, from my experience, it hasn't worked for most people. Um, for the many I'm, of the I'm lucky. I must get the about. good ones. I mean, uh, like I. So when I uh, retired from the NFL, um, I wanted to own a gym, and I ended up interning and working at a gym. And one of my very first clients um, was like five two, three hundred pounds. 
super yeah. heavy and, uh, you know, was going through a bunch of like health issues. And I remember sitting there and talking with her about it. You know, she was like, I have this bread addiction and like just all of these, like everything was an addiction for her. And I remember when everything became outcome focused, like, uh, what's something that you want to be able to do that, that we can necessarily tie the training to. And she had these two yeah. big dogs. She's like, I want to be able to walk the dogs in oh, Laguna Canyon awesome. and be able to do this. Okay. So then we started training and like, here were all the pieces and like, we just kind of kept layering it in. And I remember after six months, she was able to attain her goal and she came back and she's like, I reached my goal. What's the next one that we have to put together? Cause yeah. I'm afraid if I don't have a goal, yes. I'm just yes. going to revert. So then we put another goal together and another goal together and she ended up reaching her goal uh, or not. I mean, necessarily slimming down and reaching this. And I remember her telling me if I didn't like, like if my only representation of getting better was what I saw in the mirror, yes. she's like, I think I would have failed. Abs but by putting these together and making it performance oriented, people did dramatically better. And well, we've seen tens of thousands of people make massive life changes because a switch in the way that their mind worked, where now I'm going to focus on being able to do something I wasn't able to do before more so than just like, oh, I want to lose five pounds and look better. In that's, it's meaningful what you're talking. I would call it personally relevant and compelling reasons to do something. And over time, as people do it, they really start to notice how much better they feel. And again, that's the research shows that it's the unconscious motivator. I can say it explicitly that research shows this, but when you talk to people who are regular, and again, I, I use my husband a lot as an example, just because he's easy. Um, in, 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 but I remember an early conversation with him when, and remember, he's an exercise physiologist, right? So this is his work. He's a habiter. He exercises every day at 530, even if he goes to bed at midnight, which drives me bananas. But let's forget about that for a minute. And um, I said to him, why do you exercise? And he, uh, and he said, well, you know, my dad had some early heart issues early in life. And, you know, I want to make sure that that doesn't happen to me. And I said, is that why you get up at 530 when you've only had four hours of sleep? He's like, oh, no. I'd feel like crap if I didn't exercise. Ooh, that's the real reason. And, and research bears this out. If you ask people why they exercise and they give you different reasons and then people, they do stats. Um, Eilat Fischbach um, and one of her grad students did a really interesting study. And they showed that despite saying future reasons drive exercise, it was the unconscious feel good reasons that were actually predicting it. People, the reason people don't know that it's actually the feel-good reasons that drive the decision, and of course the identity, is because we haven't taught them that those are the reasons. We've taught people you should exercise for weight and health and you know for this and that, but we haven't taught them. Guess what though? It's the now, it's the now feel-good reasons. It's the fact that it's it's who you feel you are at your core. That's what's gonna actually lead to sustainable change. You know, one thing that we didn't talk about, and I don't know if it's relevant, but there's a quiz on my website for the trap, decision traps. So I don't oh, know I if took you it. took that. Oh, Ooh, yeah. did you fall deep in the trap, Tex? Yes. He, uh, I took this test. So this is- Tex has a lot of self-loathing. So he's a, he, he's a big self-loather. Okay. <laughs> oh, I'm an Irish Catholic. I'm working through a lot right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I tried to explain it to him. Guilt's a lot like heavy luggage. You can carry it around or you can just set it down and walk away from it. Well, then you hold other people's guilt. Uh, I'm Irish Catholic, and I learned long ago just to set those suitcases down and just walk away and leave them. I didn't have the Doris Wellborn as a, a life mentor. <laughs> uh, my, my mom is um, 
uh, God, I don't know how to explain her. Um, <laughs> uh, my mom probably would have been better to be, to have been like General Patton's assistant. Uh, like my mom is very like lacks emotion. Um, and well, is, you're three big motivators, Michelle. You're gonna love this for John. It's money, food, and shame. Uh, is well, there an origin story there? What from? Uh, well, <laughs> like. Um, <laughs> So I believe shame is by far the most powerful motivator on the planet for me personally. Uh, like there's, um, so I, I have a, um, a terrible fear of failure. Um, I'll be the first to admit it. But like, whereas people have this fear of failure as self-sabotage, uh, fear of failure is the, sell, is the kick in the pants every morning that wakes me up and gets me out of the house to try to like destroy things. Mm -hmm. um, so like mine is a very positive. Like when I went to go out and, uh, you know, as an NFL player, when I ran on the field, you know, I wasn't necessarily thinking of glory. I was thinking that this dude across from me is going to, his entire mission for the entire day is to make me look bad and I'm not going to look bad. And anything that I have to do to prepare myself to like not look bad, but more importantly, impose my will upon him so that he looks bad is like, was the motivator. And, uh, that, and, and then the shame of losing and the fact that your name is on the back of your Jersey was always big to me. Like there's nowhere to hide. So like the shame of potentially losing and fail and failing um, is a huge motivator for me. So I really believe that, um, you know, we've gotten into this whole, you know, like, I don't know, 2022 where you can't say anything bad to anybody and everybody is uh, very sensitive. Whereas I think uh, the shame of not being who you need to be, not doing things right, like it's not okay. And we've gotten in a society where like, Oh, you know, you don't measure up. It's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. And I, I, I like, I just don't buy into it. I think that shame is a powerful motivator. And if we remove shame from stuff, I think it what allows us to create guardrails to help us move in the right direction. You know, so I guess two things. The first thing I want to react to is the first, for me, what one of the things you're speaking to is um, just that everyone needs to, in an, in, and it's something people don't know intuitively because we've only been brainwashed to have a few reasons or motivators. So it's really important for people to figure out. And I think in the work you're doing with people, you know, you're clearly helping them figure out what is going to motivate them as an individual. So that's the first thing I want to say. You know what motivates you. And that is absolutely essential. Most people don't. And in fact, when you ask most people, I did, I did a study, a qualitative study, where we asked people, what do you think we can do to get more people to walk? Like, tell, give us the messages. And people said things, things like, you know, show them what they'll be in the ER with a heart attack if they don't. And people, because of what they've learned through society, they're feeding back to us. This is what's going to motivate people. Most people don't know what's going to motivate them yet because They've learned things through society that are not motivating. So, so that's all saying it's really important to help people identify what's truly going to motivate them, not what they believe is going to motivate them. Number one. Number two, you know, I don't feel like I know enough about the, this issue to really have a strong opinion to either agree with you or disagree with you about, you know, the whole everyone wins kind of thing. But what it, it, what it reminded me of was Carol Dweck's work, which I'm sure that you both know about, which is that um, whether people come to an experience as an opportunity to learn or achieve has really important downstream implications on 
the quality of their motivation and persistence. And her research, most of it has been with education, but it has been used, you know, across life contexts. It's it's among the most fundamental psychology, I think, for any any behavior that needs persistence. And her research pretty conclusively shows that when people perceive themselves as having an opportunity to fail, as needing to do it right, that that doesn't lead to as optimal outcomes as having more of a learning perspective. Um, so it's not, it doesn't track 100% on what you were just talking about, but I think it's relevant to the question. Sure. No, I, I, I think what is fascinating, and I, I, I completely agree with you, people don't understand motivation. And like, I think, uh, as you were talking about the, you know, like what would motivate people to walk more? I think the single best thing to motivate people to walk is having a watch that counts steps. I know when I talk to my mom, she's 82, she's super fit. Um, when I talk to her and she tells me exactly, I walked X amount of steps today and she's in this internal competition with herself to walk more steps the day, uh, the next day than she did the day before. She's like, I'm up to 11, I'm up to 12,000. And then my whole deal is like, why don't you find a different terrain? you know, set the deal and see how many steps you can do within time. So, I mean, if anything, what we've done is uh, taken different routes, different performance goals and trying to get her to, you know, increase her steps or go faster, go farther. I mean, being able to do it more so than like, okay, hey, I'm going to get 10,000 steps today because she, you know, she reached that goal, but then needed to continue to add to that goal. So then it was like, okay, a different route, uh, different things to increase it. And I think like that step counting thing is by far probably what I've seen is probably the best motivator for people because it measures and it's something for that's uh, repeatable and measurable. Um, getting people just to go walk, I don't know, is always as beneficial. Well, research doesn't bear that out. So oh, it doesn't? You, no, but that's okay. okay. You yeah. know, what matters is what works for the people you're working with. So what I think is important to understand is, you know, we all have our, we all have the experiences with the people that, you know, the people that I coach with, I have different experiences with people are drawn to me because of what they see about me. People are drawn to you because of what they see about you and you guys as a company. So I think it's, it's really important to always keep in mind that um, what we experience isn't necessarily what the world experiences. And I think if we come with that insight, then it, it, it just helps us be more open to other things. I think it creates an opportunity for Doris to call her baby boy and make a little connection there. <laughs> you got something to talk uh, about. Identity, yeah. identity. There we go. Identity and values. Uh, actually, my mom won't call me for weeks at a time. Because <laughs> she knows she's not walking. No, no, she is. She's hammered. She doesn't have time to, to screw around on the phone and have meaningless conversations <laughs> when there's walking to be done. Uh, my mom is uh, extremely, uh, what's the right word? Uh, hard. She's a very hard woman, like in terms of like, yeah, she's just very no nonsense, no bullshit. Um, like it works for some people. Yeah. That works for some people, you know. But uh, again, when we're talking about sustainability, what gets people to start is very different than what gets most people to stick with it. Michelle, I just pulled up my quiz results for distractions, and I just picked up on the acronym that you've created here: temptation, rebellion, accommodation, and perfection. All these distractions, John, are traps. Mm. Well, she brought up the Netflix deal and uh, I just am amazed that there's that much information. So my favorite, like, I don't necessarily like to watch Netflix. I like to just scroll around and see what's potentially on Netflix. So my kids get crazy. Well, that's 45 minutes. So what I do is I scan through everything and then I watch nothing. 
And the kids are like, you're not going to watch anything? I'm like, no, I'm just more curious to know what it has because I can't believe it has this many titles. I'm not interested in watching anything. So it drives my kids actually crazy because I'll tell you, they sit like in um, this happened during COVID lockdown. We never had Netflix or any like uh, digital streaming services. And then when the lockdowns happened, we got co- well, we got Netflix and it's such a trap. Like the show ends and then the other one immediately starts and they put out entire seasons at once. Like yeah. it's so oh, yeah. different than when we were kids. Remember, there was like one TV show a week. You knew what it was on. Like. You didn't record it. You missed it. You missed it. And now it's just this endless bank. Like, I don't know as a 10 or 11 year old kid, if I could even fathom this. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I knew there was that much TV on, like there, like it, there's no way. I'm sure you've seen this with people where they just, it, it's overwhelming. It's so challenging for kids, for getting our kids active. It's so challenging. It's really a problem. I don't have the answer to that. It is it except for setting limits because um, the ki- kids it's addictive watching screens you know that's another one but that's you know that's not what I do research on I just am a parent you know so sure. no I'm 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 with you um, but I uh, are the habits I mean I mean you know as a parent but also in this um, you know what are ways that people can influence their kids into this healthy is uh, like for me personally, um, the example of my parents was by far the most impactful. Like I saw what a hard worker my dad was and that like, you know, element of like seeing how hard my dad worked and busted his ass on everything. Like that's where I learned work ethic. Uh, seeing how hard my parents worked every single day was extremely impactful for me. Like I never saw my parents sit down. And if it did, it was maybe like later at the end of the night, sit down for a few minutes. Like they were never stopped moving. There was always this idea of like, you know, go, go, go. So that was impactful to me. I wonder like, what are, you know, like, yeah. how do you like, uh, you know, like what impacts kids today? Is it, I mean, it's so much different, I guess, now with social media and all these other medians that are feeding in on these kids. I'm just wondering about, you know, cause we tend to have a lot of parents that listen to this podcast or at least, you know, dads that are looking to influence their kids. Yeah. You know, what's something that they can do to influence their kids in a positive light? Yeah. Well, so, you know, my, my research is really focused on healthy lifestyles. So I'll use that as an example. You know, I think uh, talking explicitly about why you value, you know, going down into the gym and, and taking family bike rides and walks and having fun, turning it into a fun activity and a way to connect. Uh, I, you know, that's, that's what I would recommend. You know, I, I I think that um, families and parents are huge role role models and everything. And when kids are at certain developmental stages, their peers, you know, are more important role models, you know, during that period. I mean, peers are so important to them. So it's challenging with social media because of the literal brain development that our kids are going through, you know. Um, But I do think as parents, when we talk about, I mean, I remember... Uh, a, a couple months ago, it was a really busy time with promoting my book and I didn't get my long 60 minute walk in. And so after dinner, I said to my husband and son, I'm like, you know, how, let's take a walk. Let's take a walk. You know, and my my very astute um, then 13 year old said, is this a joy choice for you, a.k.a. <laughs> save? Is this a save for you? You know, and I'm like, you got it. You know, it's so important. And doing this with you makes it even more um, meaningful to me. So I need it. I don't feel as good when I don't do it, you know? So 
I think we underestimate the value of talking out loud about why we do things that are important to us because they can't read our mind. They can see our actions, but when we compare our actions with words and explanations, they can't but help learn it. They may not subscribe to it um, then, but they can't but help learn it. In in school on behavior change, it was a lot of, okay, we need to get people to stop doing this, stop doing this. And the cool thing about the book that I took away was your emphasis, not necessarily taking away behaviors and elimination, but adding healthy behaviors. Can you speak to the, the mindset between adding healthy behaviors versus just eliminating negative ones? Sure. You know, in general, research suggests that approach goals, approaching something. Now, this is different than what you were talking about in terms of what, you know, motivated you. So we always, again, we have to keep in mind that something is never true for everyone, whatever we do. Now, it may be true for most people in this 70% bell curve area, but that doesn't mean it's true for most people. We always have to keep it in mind. In general, approaching something is more motivating than trying to avoid it. So that's like a truism, if you will, for many people. And so why, why, let's think about why that is. Well, if we approaching something means we want it, right? And that puts our brain in, I'm, I'm going toward that. It puts us in more of a desire mode. If we're going, if we're trying to avoid something, that is kind of this, convoluted. It's, it's hard. You know, what's your reason for wanting it? We're wanting to avoid it. I mean, there's more kind of mental steps in the way that I think about it, but in general, you know, the research shows that approaching things, when we approach things, um, you know, we're probably also more open and as opposed to contracting when we're trying to avoid something, no, I can't have that. No, I shouldn't. And, you know, having uh, a more expanded mind frame is probably a more positive experience than a contraction. So I'm, I'm kind of riffing a little bit, like there's probably very specific research that can speak to that other than the beyond the approach and the avoidance. But um, I think we're more likely to also integrate things. If we want this, it's more easy to actually have it make it a part of who we are, as opposed to, again, we're avoiding something. So I think it's a more direct pathway to having it become a part of who we are. Why do you think, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, just that it was a more of a growth perspective. And then, I mean, I read Carol Dweck's research well beyond school, but then in our recent 90 day challenge, I was, I was speaking of earlier, what I did on top of it was add daily meditation. Uh-huh. So that was a practice. It was a, I did it, but it wasn't a practice, if that makes sense. So adding that into it. So I was intentional with that. And then, I mean, we had nutrition goals. So I had to eat a specific amount of protein. I wasn't big on tracking before. So now I'm adding in awareness to what I'm consuming rather than just Eh, ballparking it and training hard. Now it was uh, training hard and then tracking specific intake. So these behaviors I was adding on top of exercise that now really dialed in and allowed me to feel good and really get wrapped up in the end goal and not feel shame from the big guy. 
Well, tell uh, me, you said you took the trap quiz. What did you do? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I got a few tabs open here, like 30. But um, so Rebellion, well, let me scroll to the top. Uh, temptation, pretty low. Uh, we, we do often, anytime we put out a nutrition or training challenge for our, our followers, our clientele, we do it beforehand. Yeah. So like, I know this is the, the team environment. I'm all in. So temptation, I, I know that my, my brethren here are also in the same route. So well, I thought you were really a big Walt tempted. Whitman guy. The only way to satisfy temptation is to yield to it. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't hear that quote the past 90 days. Uh, low in rebellion. Again, big, big team guy. I'm not going to push back. I know we're all in this for the bigger picture. Uh, accommodation moderate. As I mentioned, distractions, uh, remote team. So, I mean, we get, and I mean, internet business, we got emails coming in 24 hours a day. Sure. So that's, that's the bad habit is getting back to people as quickly as it can. You know, within, if it takes two minutes, I try to do it versus like banking it into a, in a 60 minute window. I don't know what's best. Uh, so still just doing that. And then perfection moderate. This is, I've tried not to get away from perfection. This is in the beginning of my coaching career, big perfectionist and realized, you know, it's, it's better to connect and create a relationship with an athlete and work towards perfection versus like get mad at them for not following the program to a T or executing a movement poorly. I can't get mad at them. So, yeah. uh, started my career as a perfectionist. Well, you can't get mad at them anymore. What do you mean? You were extremely, I mean, early on. Oh, you, yeah. You, dude. dude. I, I know. Dude. I, I've known you a long time. I mean, we taught like you were a 100% perfectionist and you actually had this mindset where if somebody didn't do it well, you took it personally. Yes. Whereas I don't take anything personally in that regard. Like if somebody can't move, that's not on me. That's on them. Now I can instruct them. And I think what happens for a lot of people, and I actually, I found this owning a commercial gym. Uh, like I knew that the day was done when I shouldn't own a gym anymore when I wanted it more for the people than they wanted it for themselves. So I had a client who came in, trained with us, had an amazing experience. Like, like, like the type of transformation you put on Instagram to sell something. And, uh, the person came in like a week later and was like, I'm quitting the gym. And I'm like, what do you mean? We're just getting started. They're like, it's not that important to me. And I was like, not begging them to stay, but I was like, this is important to me. I mean, the work that we've done is important. Like this is, and they're like, nah, it's, it's not that big a deal to me. And I realized that when I wanted it more than the clients did, I got no business owning a gym. And that was the end of my experience in terms of owning a commercial gym and working with people like that in, in that realm. And then we transferred more into power athlete and what we do now where we get to inter, like um, really influence large swaths of people, which to me, I think is much better. But man, that was a really weird feel, you know, realization where you sink all this time and effort and you kind of sink your soul into helping somebody. And they're like, eh. I'm like, God damn you. And then you realize that not everything's as important to people as you think. And, but I know early on when we taught the seminars, you would get extremely like take it personally that people didn't move well. And like that was never something that bothered me, but you've grown since out of that. Yeah. I can still be passionate about what the work we do and not hold it against people. I can yeah. hold them accountable. Sure. That's for sure. If they're not trying, <laughs> well, the, uh, then I can intervene. Uh, Doc, I was going to ask you about this one. Um, something that I've run into, it feels like uh, maybe I don't know if it's a crutch or an excuse, but I get so often people say, well, that's not how I was raised. Where, uh, you know, my parents, 
Uh, this wasn't important to my parents. This isn't how I was raised in my household. This wasn't important. And I always think that's kind of a cop out, but I've, but I've been hearing it more and more recently than I've ever heard it. Well, I guess I need a specific example to really well, like, understand. Uh, like talking to somebody about eating, like what I would say, Hey, you know what? Like here is effectively, we know that there's a certain set of foods that are more beneficial to you in terms of performance and muscle than other foods. Like, uh, you know, a pound of, uh, let's say a pound of steak is going to definitely help us more in terms of body composition than like a pound of cake. Right. So like being able to discuss these things and being like, okay, Hey, like, um, you know, we know that, you know, muscle is more beneficial in the, in the end game. And that happens in a high protein environment. And I've gotten from people, well, I wasn't raised like that. That's not how we ate when we were kids. So what I would do, what I would do is you start, there's like this logical thought uh, logical series of questions. The first is, do you care about building muscle? So first you got to hook them on the why that's related to what you're talking about. So you, what, in order to make something important and compelling to someone and how, and you want to make sure it's connected to the greater why. And you're talking about this because of, from what I understand, you're, you're saying you want to help them build muscle. And then they say, well, I'm not raised like that. And the, the thing that I would say is, well, yes, it, it's important to honor the ways that people have been raised and enculturated in the, you know, the practices, eating practices. And you can say, you know, that's wonderful. You know, how, ask, be curious. How were you raised? What were the things that you ate in your family? And then you can just give them the information and say, you know, you can keep doing this, but the work that I follow suggests blah, 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 blah. And then you, then it's their choice ultimately, you know, but what I would do is honor what they're telling you, because when you tell people, you know, when you kind of just are dismissive of something, even if, even if there's a, you know, it, it doesn't align with what you're trying to get them to do, people get defensive and defensiveness is among the great, you know, that's why people rebel. That's why people shut down. So ask them about their eating practices and then say, you know, what I need to know to help you is, do you want to achieve X, Y, and Z? I mean, you guys are into performance and, and, you know, body strength. Do you want to achieve X, Y, and Z? And if you do, this is what I'm going to suggest. Does this sound like something you're interested in doing? So, or what, what are the barriers to you doing this, get at their bear. And they may say, it feels weird because I didn't learn to do that in my family. Well, then that gives you an in to talk more about it. So I, I guess, you know, when I'm, one of the really important things we've already talked about, but I think it, in this period is important to reiterate is, you know, when you're trying to get people to change their behavior in any way, you immediately um, want to understand what their barriers are because that's what's going to get in their way. So really strategically, tactically helping them un- identify what those barriers are and then develop strategies and techniques. And now we're going to go back to, to Carol Dweck to experiment with and learn about, right? Like when someone comes to a coaching session, one of my coaching sessions, and you know they didn't do what they hoped to do and they're very deflated And I'm like, but what got in your way? And they're like, well, it was this, this, and the other. That's the goal because that is what's going to help them develop the effective tactics and strategies to 
prevent, overcome, transcend those things. So I would look at, I would have, I, I think it's really important to help people understand what's getting in their way is opportunities to solve the things that are, you know, preventing them from the long-term success that they're after. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, and the example I'm giving is uh, somebody reached out who was a vegan and um, they wanted to put on muscle. And I remember telling them, like, it's really difficult to put on muscle as a vegan. It's just, it's very difficult to create that high protein environment. And uh, well, that's, you know, that's not, and there was all these other barriers for it. And it's like, well, I'm just not the right person for you. Right. You know? That's right. And, and, and that's I'm, right. I'm the first to tell them, I'm like, dude, I, like, I'm not the right person. There's other people that have figured this out. This isn't my forte. Go find somebody else. That is, and that's the perfect hand. If you can tell, and I do the same thing. If someone comes to me, you know, just talking about calories and losing weight, I'll just say, I'm not the person for you. You know, I, I know what my research shows and I want to help you sustain behaviors. But if your belief system is focused on this, I know that I can't help you. Uh, Michelle, have you ever fire, fired a, co- a client? You like know they what? wouldn't adhere. I have never fired a client. I have had uh, a client, you know, fire me, if you will. I um, And I write about this in the perfection chapter where a woman emailed me after my first book came out and she was gung-ho to work with me. And I was full, my practice was full, so I couldn't take her on. But the things she was saying in the email were huge red flags for me. And she kept following up. She kept following up. And finally, after a year, I took her on as a client and I gave her the new information about physical activity recommendation changes. And but she set these overly ambitious goals and she kept missing them, but she wouldn't. And she just kept failing. She wouldn't be flexible and change. And finally, I just said to her, you know, why do you keep doing something? That, why do you keep doing the same thing? We've talked about the research. And she said, Michelle, you know what? I heard about the research. I understand it. What can I tell you? I just don't want to believe it. And she didn't. And she stopped coming. And I, you know, I, um, I followed up with her a few times. It, you know, I don't view it as her fail. I viewed it as my fail. But, you know, I, I got a sense of her from early communications. And like you said, I should have just said even though she followed up over a year, I should have just said, I, I don't think I can help you from the, our conversations. And I suggest that you do a X, Y, or Z. So, yeah, I, you know, it's about fit and there isn't always a perfect fit. Right. And ideally we can identify that beforehand. And usually I did, but that time I didn't. Well, there's a good saying. Uh, you're the, what, what is it? You're the villain in somebody's story. Everybody's the villain in somebody's story. So I sometimes think that people, um, you know, come to you in such a way and are kind of self-defeating and it ends up making you, instead of me not wanting to do this, you aren't the right fit. And I've run into that before where I'm like, cool, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to be your villain. Yeah. Go out and write your own story. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the more we work with people, the quicker we can, we can identify, oh, this is not a good fit. And then being honest with it, you know? Um, yeah. I want to highlight the, the importance of flexibility in one of our most successful training programs for the garage gym athlete. It's called Grindstone. And it's a, essentially a choose your own adventure. Mm. So you organize the training sessions according to how much time you have each week. So if Saturdays you got the most free time, then you hit the the heaviest, most challenging day. So you always two mandatory days a week, and then it's almost 
a 15 minutes here, 20 minutes here, 30 minutes here, and different options if you've got the time available. So that's a cool program that almost backed into the things you found from your research. Absolutely. If I deeply believe, again, not for everyone, but for most people, if we can teach them how to be active in flexible ways, eat better and more intentionally in flexible ways, that is the tactic of success. But if we step outside of our conversation and think about being able to pivot quickly is essential in a successful business. Societies, flourishing societies are built on flexible thinking and creativity is flexible thinking. So, you know, once we step outside of our, you know, specific conversation and think about life and marriage and parenting, flexibility is this key tactic everywhere. So why wouldn't we bring it to our exercise and eating initiatives? It's such an interesting kind of point, like, uh, um, you know, question or, or more importantly, statement you make, like, you know, we see flexibility in everything we do, um, you know, but yet when it becomes into these, uh, you know, very, very kind of primal approaches of terms of eating and fitness, which should be aside from sleeping and maybe some auto, um, autonomic functions like heartbeat and breathing, I mean, it should be within our most basic, like why are uh, like where does that rigidity? And I think that that's, what's so confusing for me is like, yeah. you know, why is it that we look at it as like, you know, Hey, like, uh, you know, today, uh, you know, this is what I'm supposed to eat. I might go out to dinner and I might eat like a, a hamburger, for example. And I know exactly how many calories are in that bun. And I can kind of do this kind of like back of the envelope math and know, all right, I'm gonna eat that double burger and I'll be fine because I, I you know, I, uh, I cautioned for it earlier. Or, you know, hey, we missed our training today. Great. I'm just going to double up or I'm going to do something else to kind of make up and make sure that I'm at least doing something active. So, I mean, flexibility is so paramount in our lives. Why is it that those two aspects become so rigid where all of a sudden, if you're not able to fit within the confines of this box, you're in this kind of self-defeating, self-defeating prophecy. It's what we've been socialized to do. It's literally been, it's like, it's as if there's this giant brain over the whole world that's gone boop, boop, boop. You got to do it right. Boop, boop, boop. And again, it's no one's fault. It's the way it's evolved. But the most important thing is realizing that this has been the case. And once we can realize it, then we can talk about it and then we can help people change. And, you know, I use in my, in my coaching and teaching, I use case studies and I have people problem solve and you want to engage people in thinking, what do you think? Here's two options. Which one do you think is going to, is going to be more likely to lead to long-term success? Ask people and then get them to try it. And again, this is where Carol Dweck's learning mindset comes in. Did it work? It was an experiment. It's not set in stone. So it's, it's, I think, you know, having people like you, um, leaders in the field who are doing things in different ways and talking about what you're doing and why you're doing it, that is, it's going to be, it's going to take time to turn this huge ship. But I think the more people that start going boop, boop, boop in different ways, we're going to help change the way people believe and teach them to be more flexible because learning how to balance our eating and our physical activity with sedentary time, that is a crucial part of, of, of who we are, but we haven't been taught how to do that. You know? Interesting. Yeah. Just a, a, an observation here. A lot of the feedback we get on that 
grindstone program, the choose your own adventure I was mentioning earlier is they almost are folks, they feel bad because they're leaving our other training programs and it's a, a compromise and they feel bad joining right. this program right. when in our opinion, it's one of our best ones. Yeah. No, Be- there, there definitely is a feeling like it's like a safe. Oh, I, right. I've, that's I've, what I've I'm getting kids. To. The, tra- uh, the yeah. trap. They, they are, I, I'm seeing now that they are perfectionists. When I receive this message yeah. from them, they're mad. They can't do these 60 right. to 75 minutes, six days a week. But That's the right. other programs are written. But so we're, we're helping these people understand that their distraction that they're giving themselves and we can help them become better people. Well, I found that people that are flexible tend to be like, man, like, uh, like growth mindset. Like, like fix versus change well, that. I know like the fix versus growth mindset. We run into a lot of people that are within this fixed mindset and like they, they don't understand the idea of like flexibility and a lot of things. Like I'll just give you an example. Um, you know, Lane Norton, who's a super prickly nutrition guy on the internet. Um, he came up with this deal with, you know, flexible dieting and kind of says, Hey, you know, if it fits your macros, it's been a big deal and people lash out against him. I mean, uh, like I, I wouldn't want to do it every single day, but I understand you know, the idea that he's going for, but people rail against this guy so hard and it's because they're in such a fixed mindset. And I'm like, okay, well, like, uh, you know, not everybody's going to be able to like prepack their meals. And when they go out to dinner with their family, be like, I'm not eating anything. I brought my little Tupperware thing. And I've done that. I mean, I've seen my wife do it and it, it it, kind of like ostracizes you out of like the whole thing. It's like, I'm not eating, I'm going to eat my own food. And I think like, because you did bring it up, uh, meals and especially like when you go out to dinner, it's a social event. People yeah. have tied emotion and social and you know camaraderie and this thing into eating, and then all of a sudden you kind of ostracize elf, yourself out by eating something weird. That that's the word deprivation. If people go and you know now, if this happens every day and every meal, then you have to examine it. But if you go to a, a dinner out, special party, whatever it is, and you like are like this and you feel deprived, guess what you're going to do when you get home. You know, you're going to rebel and go, you know, to heck with this. So we need to teach people how to do it in a way that they don't feel deprived, that they follow something. Again, the other thing about consistency is it reinforces the identity that you guys are already trying to create, you know. And so, um, you know, with the people who you've said express, they feel like failures because they shifted to your more flexible program. That's that is what we're seeing is the 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 brainwashing the perfection brainwashing that people carry within them but you'll change them through seeing and and explicitly talking about we're redefining success because this other definition doesn't work for most people or it doesn't work for you so we're going to redefine success in a way that you can be successful like why is it let me just tell you a really quick story um, I was giving a talk to, to MDs and talking about being flexible with their prescriptions with patients and their physical activity. Um, and one person stood up, she was really pissed at me because she's like, how dare you tell me that I can, you know, tell my patients to do less than it's actually going to be valuable for their health to do. And you know, she was really offended, morally offended. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to say to her? And all of a sudden I realized what I was going to say to her. And I smiled and I said, how's that working for you? Right. So there might be this gold standard ideal. But if it doesn't work for people, it's worthless. And, and that's and what we you know can tell your work. 
That's what you can tell your clients who are feeling badly about shifting. You say, look, goal, if this, you think this is a gold standard, it isn't. Because if it doesn't work for you, it's worthless for you. So let's find something that is going to work. How about the ultimate difficulty is getting your significant other to start exercising or making better health decisions. Mm. Any recommendations for our listeners out there to get their SIGO to start moving? That's a great question, a very challenging question, because there's a just a fine line between encouragement and um, feeling and feeling uh, like you're being pressured, feeling like you're being encouraged and feeling like you're being pressured. I've been asked that question before about spouses, about kids, you know, and I think the answer is that you kind of have to take a long-term view and not look for immediate changes. And you want to be inviting. And again, you want to verbalize and you can't, if a, if a spouse feels like you're trying to pressure them to change, we all know, right. From being on both sides of that, well, you know, what's going to, how, how poorly that's going to go. So what we want to do is share why we might care about something. If we're worried about our, if we're worried about our partner's health, then, you know, even though it may not motivate our partner, we, we can like own that concern and share it being completely unattached to the outcomes. We can share that concern and say, you know, I don't know if you share the concern, but if the person says yes, then you ask, you know, what, is there something that I can do to help support you, um, you know, manage this or something. So the research on motivation is, is really pretty clear. Now, again, there's always individual differences, but in general, if people feel pressured to do something, it's, it becomes a contaminant in the motivation. And so we not, we all, we never want people to feel like they're being pressured into doing something. So what, what's the alternative? Inviting them to do something with us. And if that means a save, like if that means we don't do our hard bike right outside. And instead we take a leisurely walk to include our partner. Like I do not like to ride bikes. And my husband knows if that's the family activity, I will probably bow out of it. But if he's, he wants, he says, let's do a family walk. I'll participate. So what we want to do is be able to tailor what we do to, to the other person and make it fun, make it a time of connection. I think that's a big one. Make it a time of connection for the two of you um, because that's a highly motivating. Um, connecting as, as humans is among the biggest motivator that exists. So I think that would be my best advice is to figure out how to invite them to do something and make it a time of connection. Especially if something hard like weightlifting. Learn something about yourself, will you? No, I mean, <laughs> like, I've come to the conclusion that, like, um, man, like, like making a behavior change is so interesting for people, and like we see people do it all sustainable. Well, sustainable. Well, I think when you make a behavior change, it has to become indoctrinated into your identity, and uh, like we see this all the time. Where um, you know, and and you you brought up a great point earlier in the conversation. We talked about when things are taken away from people, they're, they're like the minute that they can't do something, they rebel towards it. Yeah. When we saw COVID happen and the lockdowns and they closed down gyms, how many people did we see go build garage gyms as a form of revolt? And then all of a sudden when the gyms opened back up, 
a bunch of people sold off their garage gym, which was crazy to me because I'm like, wait a minute, you have a garage gym now. Now you have the ultimate safe. If you can't go to, to your local Gold's gym or you know, wherever you go, your CrossFit gym, you can't train that day. You can just train in your garage. So why would you empty that? And I, and I really think that the day that people couldn't rebel against something like a lockdown by having a garage gym, they didn't want it anymore, which was fascinating in terms of that. But I think so much, uh, at least what we've really pushed within the power athlete stuff and text brought up earlier is, is this identity change where this is now who I am. And these are the, this is my community. This is my tribe. This is how I identify, That's identify right. as a power That's athlete. Right. And I think life changes happen when all of a sudden it gets indoctrinated into who you are and it becomes, you know, within like, you know, the color of your cloth. Yes. And, um, uh, like I think, uh, I think what's fascinating is people are searching for community and they're searching for a way to belong and yes. they're looking for their tribe. And I think, you know, uh, a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago, 500 years ago, your tribe was probably your, the town you were born in and your, you know, your uncles and your aunts and all the people were around you. And you probably lived in this kind of small community farm where everybody was interdependent and, you know, everybody had to go out and work to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And there was a whole schedule. And so you were kind of born into your uh, surroundings. And now we're in this deal where, you know, you can live anywhere and do anything and community is more and more difficult to amass. And I think for a lot of the people I think that are failing is they just haven't found their tribe yet. They don't know who they identify with. And I think if they found their tribe, they'd probably be a lot farther along. And it sounds like you guys have created a wonderful tribe for people, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I, I've been the first to say uh, our tribe would put boots to skulls. Performance in a, in a for the people. For us. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I, I mean, we've been random places and I've seen people wear our shirts and they're just like put up a fist. I mean, people are excited to, be, or to identify with it and um, we're excited to, to provide it. So, I mean, you know, I've always wanted a like-minded community of individuals. When I left the NFL... Uh, my community was taken from me, not voluntarily, but because I couldn't play anymore. And that's the end of your career. So they kind of like send you off to the island of misfit toys and you got to find your other misfit toys to create your tribe. So, I mean, a big part of what we've done here is about creating that tribe or creating that identity. And more importantly, finding like-minded people that are focused on performance, not just, oh, I want to tone a little bit and maybe lose five pounds. That's not me. And those are, and those aren't the people we're around. And, um, I, you know, and that's not wrong. I mean, that's, there's a community of those individuals. There's not our community. All right, Michelle, if people want to, to pick up the joy choice or take this quiz, where should they head to and learn more about what you're offering? Thank you. Um, well, my website, which is my name, michelleseeger.com. I don't know if you'll have show notes or not, but, um, and the trap quiz is on the book page. Uh, and it's free and you can sign up and on the book page, there's a bunch of different ways to access the joy choice. Um, and thanks for the opportunity to talk, um, with both of you about the types of, uh, people and challenges that you, you work with. It was really, it was really interesting and fun. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it was enlightening and, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to, to dig into it more. Thank you. Thank All right. You. Thank you, Michelle. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Learn more about Dr. Michelle Seeger's work by following her on Twitter at Michelle Seeger. That's S-E-G-A-R. Until next time, uh, bye. Now